Great is God's faithfulness and his mercy never ends, that's for sure. We're going to turn to Hebrews chapter 9, please. Hebrews chapter 9 and verse 23. Just going to focus on that verse today and fan out from there. And some of the things I say today I want to, I will be saying again, only I will be wrapping Ephesians around it rather than Hebrews to get a bigger picture. This is Sunday, September 17th. This is increment 305. I'm glad you wrote this up here because I wouldn't have known that. Better sacrifices than these. That's the thought I woke up with. That's the verse we're on in Hebrews 9.23. And please notice the verse itself. This is my translation from the Greek text. Hebrews 9.23, now given the necessity that the copies of the things in the heavens be purified, the heavenly things themselves with better sacrifices than these. And that's the title of today's message, with better sacrifices than these. Moses took the blood of the animals of sacrifice and with an applicator he sprinkled the scroll of the law all the words that he had spoken to the people he sprinkled the tent the earthly tent and the earthly vessels of worship therein then he sprinkled all the people this was the sprinkling of earthly things and so the writer says there has to be better sacrifices than those that purified the copies of the real heavenly things. There has to be better sacrifices than these, the sacrifices of animals, to purify the heavenly things themselves. Now, there's, this verse has been a mystery to a lot of people for a long time, and I understand why it has been to me, too. The superiority of the blood of the Messiah Jesus and his once and for all sacrifice is illustrated here at the heart of Hebrews by the author in an extraordinary exegetical move. He alludes to the heavenly things themselves here, not so much to demonstrate the priority of the heavens over the earth, but to show the preeminence of Messiah Jesus once and for all and forever sacrifice over all the countless sacrifices offered under the law. In other words, what he's emphasizing here is not the priority of the heavens above the earth, and there is that. There is a priority of heavens over the earth in as much as all of God's actions proceed from heaven to the earth. But the emphasis is not on the superiority of the heavens over the earth, but the superiority of Jesus Christ's perfect sacrifice and the infinite transcendence of it over all of the countless sacrifices of animals and the blood of animals slain over the course of centuries of Israel's history. 
So he alludes to the heavenly things themselves here, not so much to demonstrate the priority of the heavens over the earth, but to show the preeminence of Messiah Jesus. It is Jesus whom we see with the eyes of the heart, the whole reason for this series. And my prayer today on the way down in the car was open the eyes of the listeners today, of the hearers, open all our, our, all our eyes. And for those whose eyes are open to this truth, open our eyes wider. For those whose ears are open to these truths, open our ears wider. And then I always pray, fill this house with your glory. And I certainly echo Brian's petitions made this morning. A church gathering is a place where all that we speak are prayers and praise to God and that the message itself is God speaking through his word. Nothing else. And that's how God fills his house with his glory and so fills the temple that the flesh cannot enter. Much of Christianity today that calls itself Christian isn't really Christian because it's filled with the efforts of the flesh. It's filled with self-improved people who have improved their performance in the old man and hid the despicable and desperate unrighteousness of the old man by a patina of self-righteousness. And that's why in this battle of darkness and light, it seems that the light is fading, but the light is not fading, it's the darkness that's failing. And I'm here to announce that today and will again perhaps on Wednesday. The once and for all sacrifice of Jesus Christ brought about not only the reconciliation of humanity, of man to God, it also brought about, and listen carefully to this, the reconciliation of all things in the heavens and on earth. Ephesians 1.10, Colossians 1.20. So see how that begins to melt into Hebrews 9.23, given the necessity that the copies of the things in the heavens be purified, the heavenly things themselves, meaning needed to be purified with better sacrifices than these, the heavenly things themselves. So the once and for all sacrifice of Jesus Christ brought about not only the reconciliation of man to God, it also brought about the reconciliation of all things in the heavens and on earth. None of the countless sacrifices nor the sum of all those sacrifices could ever affect the heavens, could never bring satisfaction to God for the reconciliation of the world and for the alteration of the universal situation that the sacrifice of Jesus did. As Colossians 1.20 says, God made peace by the blood of the cross of the Son of his love, by perfect love demonstrated in the perfect sacrifice of Jesus Christ. So we run into problems if we get caught up in the web of wondering about the purica purification of 
of the heavenly things themselves. And I will teach on this down the road a little bit or up the road a little bit. Did the heavens require purification? And the answer is yes, in short they do because they are part or half of the whole of creation, the heavens and the earth. They are created reality, not uncreated reality. Only God is uncreated reality. All of created reality required the purification that comes through the finished work of Jesus Christ. So we run into problems if we get caught up in the web of wondering of the purification of the heavens and the things in the heavens themselves. And we get curious, you mean the heavens, the things in heavens need purification? And we think about what that could possibly mean rather than seeing that the primary focus of this is on the better sacrifices, plural, that God required to purify the things in the heavens or as Paul would put it, to bring about the reconciliation of the heavens and the earth, all things in the heavens and earth. In other words, to effect a radical alteration of the situation of creation itself, the heavens included, as well as the earth. That took the perfect sacrifice of Jesus Christ. So the idea here, if I wanted to really simplify this, it could be a board meeting. And in the board meeting, someone will say, well, we need better sacrifices than these to purify the heavenly things. And the answer comes forward with, how about not sacrifices, plural, but one perfect sacrifice that'll do the trick, that'll do the job. And that's exactly what we have here. One perfect sacrifice. Better sacrifices, plural, answered by the single, unrepeatable, once and for all, final, definitive sacrifice of Jesus Christ, which is, in fact, the expression of the perfect love of God. His one sacrifice, the sacrifice of himself, fulfills and far transcends the meaning of all the types of animal sacrifices offered in the Levitical cultus under the Mosaic law. The definitive, not provisional, the eternal, not temporal, the once and not repeatable, the sacrifice of himself and not of others, the offering of his own blood and not the blood of others is how God, who long ago spoke provisionally in the prophets, has in these last days spoken definitively in a son, a son by whom he made the universe and by whom he purified all sins. We have no idea the depth, the height, the breadth, and the width of the love of God in Christ Jesus for us. We speak of an imputed righteousness, and I'm going to be hammering that in a bit. And that's what the reformers called it, that we have an imputed righteousness from God, an alien righteousness imputed to us from God. But that's not saying enough. In fact, it's not really saying it right. 
God did not impute a righteousness alien to us, to us. God made us the righteousness of God in his son. We are the righteousness of God in his son. When his son made the perfect sacrifice, he not only did it for us, he did it as us. And so God looks upon us as having made the perfect sacrifice. What God demands and what God wills, God has given. God's righteousness is what God wills and what God demands. But he gave to us what he wills and demands. He did all this not only without our merit, but against our resistance. Not only are we not saved by our own merit, we are saved against our own resistance of his love. We were hostile. That's what it means when God commended his love toward us and that while we were yet sinners, that means while we were yet resisting everything about him, hostile about everything about him, Christ died for us. He died for the ungodly, and that's why God is a justifier of the ungodly. If God justifies the ungodly, then he must justify all because we're all ungodly. without him. Now, the heavens do, in the scriptures, have precedence over the earth. You can even look at Genesis 1-1 if you want sometime. In the beginning, which the Greek says in Christ, in RK, NRK, God made the heavens and the earth. The earth became without form and void. God made the heavens and the earth. Precedence is heavens over earth. So the heavens do have precedence over the earth, just as the man from heaven, the Lord, the Son of Man, Jesus Christ, the last Adam, has precedence over the man of earth, the first man, Adam, who is of the earth and earthly. So in scripture, it's usually the heavens and the earth in that order. In the beginning, God made the heavens and the earth, and the earth, not the heavens, the earth was made without form and void. For the earth to realize its form in actuality and fullness, it had to be joined with the heavens. And this occurred in Jesus Christ. From now on, you shall see the Son of Man Angels ascending and descending upon him, celebrating the joining of heavens and earth. Did the things in the heavens require purification? Job 15.15 says, the Lord doesn't even see heaven as pure. Because the heavens aren't pure in themselves, only God is pure in himself. Only Jesus is pure in himself. Did the heavens and do they need ha have need of purification? Yes. Sin entered the whole of the cosmos through one man. The sin of man, the one man Adam, entered the cosmos. Cosmos is the universe. It entered into the sphere of creation 
the top half of which is earth, the lower half is, or the top half is heaven, the lower half is earth. When sin entered into the cosmos, it made impure in one sense all things. We have no idea the extent of our sin. And even now when we choose to sin, we have no idea the extent of the impact and the effect of something that we think doesn't hurt others. We think it doesn't. It doesn't hurt anybody else, so I can do it. No, it, it extends far out there. In fact, in Revelation 18.5, remember the Babylon, where it says that the, her sins became a sticky mass that reached to the heavens. Did the heavens need purification? Yeah, they did. The sin that infected or contaminated the whole of the cosmos brought death with it. So the heavens are part of the cosmos. They are a created, a created half of the whole called the cosmos. That's what people today, the people call the universe something as if it's God. The universe has been good to me today. The universe is saying I shouldn't do that today. The universe is leading me today, which is an expression of a really kind of vicious idolatry because it's attributing to the creature and the creator that which belongs to the creator. It's attributing to the creature, to the created, that which belongs only to the creator. The universe isn't directing you. God is leading you if you're a son of God. And so the sin that infected the whole of the cosmos was taken away by the Lamb of God. He took away the sin of the what? The cosmos. Only the Lamb of God takes away the sin that infects and infests and contaminates the heaven and the earth, the earth and the heavens, the cosmos. He takes away the sin of the cosmos. Only the perfect sacrifice of Jesus Christ brought about satisfaction in God. When he looked at the sacrifices that were being misused by the Israelites at certain times in history, the scripture says, sacrifice and offering, you would not. You, weren't, you had no pleasure in these because they were done as a kind of religious, pious exercise. You had no pleasure in these. You did not come to full satisfaction by these. And so Jesus speaks to the Father and says, so here I come. Lo, in the volume of the book, it's been written of me to do your will, O God. For where it said sacrifices and offerings you would not, he said, a body you have given me, a body to offer by the will of God, by which we are sanctified, and the sanctified perfected or made complete. Hebrews 10.10 and 10.14, coming up someday. So this is basic biblical cosmology, the heavens and the earth forming one cosmos, the heavens being the top, the earth being the lower half of creation. And so God made peace by the blood of his son and therefore reconciled things in the heavens and things on earth in him. See, your eyes are beginning to open wider. So the 
Hebrew's author ingeniously plays on this cosmology. Not so much, once again, and this is the point I want to make, to show the priority of the heavenly over the earthly sphere and heavenly things over earthly things, but to use that order of precedence to show the superiority of the sacrifices that would be required to purify the actual heavenly things over all the sacrifices that were needed and that were offered to purify the mere copies of the heavenly things, the earthly tent, etc. So this is moving up to the fact that better sacrifices were needed than these. And so it isn't just a bunch of sacrifices that were needed. It was a once and for all and forever and unrepeatable sacrifice that was required. Only that perfect sacrifice brings about the radical alteration of the situation of mankind and of the universe itself. And only the resurrection of that Lamb of God as the great shepherd of the sheep brings about the radical alteration of the condition of the universe, including the condition of humanity and all creatures that will happen in the second appearing of our great arch priest. And so this is pressing toward the key word, one of the key words of Hebrews, which is ephapax. Ephapax means once and for all and forever. Ephapax, once and for all. There's, when you take away this prefix, you also have hapax, which means once, once, unrepeatable. So better sacrifices is the one sacrifice. The fact that there is only one makes it superior because there's no need for repetition. There's no need for repeating the same sacrifices, which we're going to learn very bluntly in Hebrews 10.3, could never take away sins or never take away the consciousness of sins. In fact, with the annual offering of those sacrifices, there was a reminder of sins once a year. So when God says, I will never remember their sins, never again, emphatically, that's the last thing he says in the new covenant promise in Jeremiah 31, 31 to 34. I will never again remember their sins, which means there will never again be a ritual Yom Kippur in which animal sacrifices are given, which causes a remembrance of sin because there will be once and for all and forever the sacrifice of my son in whom I speak in these last days. A definitive, final, once and for all, perfect sacrifice. The perfect demonstration of my perfect love. Now, This is what the author's after. He uses an uncommon way of speaking to accentuate the extraordinary superiority of the single, unrepeatable sacrifice of Jesus over the innumerable repeated sacrifices offered by the Levitical priests and archpriests under the law. 
And he does this with the express purpose that his readers would be disincentivized to return to the even then defunct system of animal sacrifices with the goal of experiencing the partial alleviation of their consciousness of sins. That's why Christians like rituals, because it gives them a little bit of a sense of alleviation of their conscience. They like formal confession with penance because it gives them a little bit of alleviation. But it's actually a walking insult against the once and for all and forever sacrifice of Jesus Christ. You know what happened there? The man of sin died with the death of Jesus Christ. The old man died. He was immolated. He went up in smoke in the whole burnt offering, in the holocaust of Jesus Christ. The most significant holocaust that ever occurred in history did not occur in the 30s of our last century, though that is an unforgettable historical event. The greatest holocaust in history was when the old man altogether went up in smoke, burned in flames, and went up in smoke in the whole burnt offering of Jesus Christ on the cross. That is the one whole burnt offering with which God is pleased. And so he is not pleased with a pseudo-Christianity of self-improvement, but with the putting off altogether of the old self, the old man, and the putting on altogether of the new man who has come forth in resurrection. The new man is Jesus Christ. Ephesians 4, 24, put on the new man. Colossians 3, 10, put on the new man. Neos and kainos used. But in Romans 13, 14, put on the Lord Jesus Christ because he's the new man. And he doesn't say the darkness is coming and the day is fading away. He says the night is almost over and the day is dawning. Darkness is losing this battle. In the first opening moments of creation, God said light shine out of darkness. But that's interpreted incorrectly. When light shone, darkness was dispelled utterly and dispersed and replaced by light. There was no more darkness, no more darkness at all. In the new creation, in the new heavens and the new earth, there will be no night and there will be no darkness no shadows and the light is winning and I'm going to be possibly hitting that as early as Wednesday or if not pretty soon when the scripture says you are light in the Lord it doesn't say you have light in the Lord it doesn't say just as it doesn't say you have righteousness in Jesus it says you are the righteousness of God in Jesus Christ. You are that. It does not say you've been lightened or you've been lit or that you have light. You are light in the Lord. Once you were darkness, skatos. Now you are light, phos, and curio, in the Lord. Walk as children of light. Act like it. Walk as children of light. That'll be coming up. That's Ephesians. And believe it or not, there's a 
comprehensible, there's an understandable leap between Ephesians 1.4 and 5.8. We may be hitting that soon. The author creatively ties the purification of the heavens with better sacrifices than the animal sacrifices of the Levitical cultists with the complete purification of the consciousness, the spirit of the mind, the thinking, the consciousness, as we've seen in Hebrews 9.14. He makes a connection between the, the better sacrifice that's needed to purify the heavens and the better sacrifice that's needed to completely purify and perpetually purify the conscience from guilt, to purify it and purge it from guilt, from feelings of guilt, from unresolved guilt, which is the root of about 80% of psychological problems today. Either guilt for one's own actions or lack of forgiveness for the actions of others is the root of 90% of psychological problems that aren't tied directly to metabolic disorders or chemical imbalances, etc. The author creatively ties the purification of the heavens with better sacrifices, meaning the once and for all sacrifice, and the purification of the consciousness by the sprinkled blood of Jesus, which has already been shown to be more powerful and complete, a purgative agent, a cleansing agent, than all the blood of bulls and goats, which purified to the sanctification of the flesh, in Hebrews 9.14. So again, let's look at the verse. My grandson Cole said to me, do you ever run out of preaching? things to preach about and I said no because every verse has something new and every time you look at the verse there's something more and he was kind of that hit him pretty hard I like it it's quite a speech that's quite a thing to talk about when you're at a Yankees pirate game <laughs> I had one grandson with a pirate hat on my left and a grandson with a Yankee hat on my right and we were surrounded by fans, Yankee fans and Pirate fans. <clears throat> the Yankees won. And now, let's, Judge was three, to f three for five, but. 9.23, now, given the necessity that the copies of the things in the heavens be purified, if there was a necessity that Moses' sprinkling of the blood on the earthly tent and the earthly implements and the earthly people Israel was necessary, then what do you think was necessary for the purification of the things that those earthly things merely represented? Now here we're, we're conf confronted with something that goes beyond everything I've said about in Hebrews. I love what Bart did, and I spent several days writing 11 pages of the most small print that when he does a scripture reference, you have to take a magnifying glass to see, because he'll say Hebrews 9, and then smaller than that, 14 up here, and you have to go. But I spent several days writing the 11 pages that he did in extremely small print on Hebrews, the best section of writing I've ever seen on the epistle to the Hebrews, ever. 
There's nothing that compares to it that I've ever read. And so the best way to grab a hold of it is to write it out completely in a notebook. And when I finished it, I sat back and said, okay, let me think about this now. Because what he did was in his writings, he came to what he called a full stop. Full stop, he said. Full stop. Because in thousands of pages, he had developed the most important thing you can say about why God became man. So that the judge would become judged for us. Speaking of judge. The judge would become judged for us. He said there's no better way of thinking about this. Then he said, so we've come to a full stop. But then he said, but there is one other place in Scripture where there is an equally important way of thinking about that, and that is the priest representing us in a self-sacrifice. And then he went into 11 pages, tiny print on Hebrews. And the things he said there were remarkable, but one of the things, and I'm not going to repeat what he said, I'm going to try to say it, let it process through me and say it in my own crude Green Mountain way. And so that'll be coming out in the next few months in the way that I see it. But one point he makes is all the biblical writers, whatever they use, whether they use the picture of a victor over an enemy or a financier paying a price to secure a ransom or whether it's a priest and an offering or the lamb of God or the judge that is judged or the king and his people none of these really are the heavenly it's not he said it's not like God looking over heaven and speaking in his own divine language these are images but the fact of the images exceed the image there's something more than just the image of a priest and a people, a priest and an offering, a lamb and an offering, a king and a subject. There's some, the reality of Jesus exceeds every image of him in the scriptures. That's why when Paul was caught up into heaven, he couldn't speak about what he saw. Because the, the, the language of God goes far beyond even our most lofty images, even the images and the language that the New Testament writers had to use to get across their point, and they did it beautifully, and they did it under the Holy Spirit. But when we see him as he is, we will see that the reality of Jesus exceeds even all of these wonderful images. The priest and the offering, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, the King of kings, the Lord of lords, the Lord of glory, all these images will be exceeded by the reality of seeing him as he is in his essence. That seeing will be so profound that it will transfigure us into that same image. It's just, it's, these things are unspeakable. So we're, we're talking about speakable things here. But we're talking about speakable things that are really pointing to unspeakable, indescribable reality that is Jesus Christ. There's nothing like it. Once you realize it, you really can't think about anything else. I mean, you can think about everything you have to think about in this world, but it's never without thinking about Jesus Christ. 
And I sometimes think a lot of people must be thinking about him, and Hollywood must be thinking about him, because they mention his name a lot. People mention his name a lot today. So I find great pleasure in speaking of Jesus Christ with worshipful awe. Speaking of Jesus, my Lord and King, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. The Lord Jesus Christ. The Lord Jesus Christ, my Lord and the Lord of all. And the Lord of you, sir, who just took his name and dragged it through the mud. He's your Lord. Blessed be the Lord. Even Muslims, when they hear so-called Christian Americans take the name of the Lord in vain, you know how they respond, some of them, the Orthodox ones? By saying, blessed be his name. They don't believe in him as God, but they know that his name should be blessed and not cursed. At least they know that. So then, this is another way of saying that better sacrifices, that is a better sacrifice, was needed to completely sanctify to the purification of the consciousness than the sacrifices that served to sanctify for the temporary and incomplete purification of the flesh. Now, these animal sacrifices that were offered, especially the ones at Yom Kippur, they did. They, first, there was a remembrance of sins. Then there was a purification of the consciousness. In Hebrews 9.9, it doesn't say that their consciences weren't purified. It simply said they weren't completely purified. They were temporarily eased. They were temporarily alleviated, but not completely, decisively purged. That's what the sacrifice of Jesus Christ does in 9.14. If the blood of bulls and goats served to sanctify to the purification of the flesh, and flesh there doesn't just mean outward body, it means the person, including the consciousness. How much more shall the blood of Christ who offered himself without spot, without blemish, without defect, that is as a lamb to God, purify your consciousness from dead works. In other words, not only will you be purified of sins and the guilt of sins, but you'll be purified of the works that people think they have to do to balance out the bad things they've done, like penance or like being kind to people, not because it's the fruit of the Spirit, but because, well, if I'm kind to people, maybe it'll balance out all the times I've been bad to people. That's a dead work. That's not Christianity. That's an attempt, a pathetic attempt at self-improvement. And it's right to call those kind of people what we used to call them as kids, goody-goody two-shoes. Remember that one? I don't even like that's It's silly. But anyways, there's a big difference between a Christianity of self-improvement and being better and not doing things you used to do and giving up a few things for God and doing it once a year in a certain holy season. There's, there's a big difference. That's not Christianity. It has nothing to do with Christianity, in fact. It's more like idolatry. There's a big difference between that and putting off altogether the old man which is a giving up of something, all right, of self, 
of your history and atom of everything. Of, and it's a presentation of your body as a living sacrifice to God, which is already holy and acceptable because of Christ and what he did. And what he did was make a perfect sacrifice, not only for you, but as you, so you in him made the perfect sacrifice. He didn't impute righteousness to you. He didn't declare you righteous. He constituted you as righteousness. That's how far it goes. So the reformers didn't speak very nearly enough about it when they talked about alien righteousness. They didn't talk about the, the righteousness of an alien, but the righteousness that is alien to us, imputed to us. So we're still going along as the same old people as we always did, always and sinning and then rebounding and sinning and rebounding, but we have a righteousness that's been legally, forensically imputed to us. That's what the reformers said. They were wrong. They were also wrong to say that we're justified by our personal faith in Jesus Christ rather than the faithfulness of Jesus Christ in his obedience to the extent of death on the cross, and therefore we are justified by his faithfulness. We are justified not by our faith. We are justified despite our unbelief, and God's put everybody under the category of unbelief that he might have mercy on all. Not only are we not justified on the basis of our merit, we are justified regardless of our resistance against all resistance of him. Unconditional grace. And it's only the opening of the eyes to this unconditional grace that yields to the putting off of the old man altogether. There's nothing good in him to preserve. He's been immolated. That means all burned up. And when the smoke went up, it's the smoke of the fire that totally eradicated the old man, that totally consumed the old man. Jesus died the death of the old man. He became sin, and becoming sin, he became that man of sin that everybody's so afraid of today. He became that man of sin. And he became sin, that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. Did he become sin? Yes. Then what have we been made? The righteousness of God in him. Did we, were we made the righteousness of God in him because we believed in him? No, but because he became sin for us, that we would become the righteousness of God in him. You see, there's more grace than meets the eye. There's more grace than the reformers ever talked about. In fact, I would say with Barth, they not only didn't talk enough about it, they talked wrongly about it in many cases. So the better sacrifices refers not only to the purification of the heavens, but to the correspondent purification of the consciousness from dead works to serve the living God. This isn't the only place in the Bible where we are talking about a purification of flesh and spirit or flesh and mind or body and consciousness. Consider Colossians 3, 1 to 2. The consciousness connected to the things in heaven. Paul said, therefore, since you were raised up together with Christ, be considering the things above where Christ is enthroned at the right hand of God. 
Set your mind on things above, not on things on the earth. There's a connection of the mind, the thinking, the consciousness with the heavens. Another passage that's even more obscure, uh, which is obscure rather, and suggests the cleansing of the mind or the spirit, and the spirit is related to the mind and the consciousness as well as the flesh, is 2 Corinthians 7.1. Therefore, Paul says, motivated by these promises, promises in 2 Corinthians 6, 16 to 18, which mirror the promises of the new covenant. Motivated by these promises, loved ones, purify, that's the word katharizo, same word used in Hebrews, purify yourselves from all defilement, that's malusmo, of flesh and spirit. All defilement of flesh and spirit. Spirit, completing sanctification in the fear of God. So we're talking about a purification of flesh and spirit, even as we're talking about a purification of earth and heavens. They're connected. They correspond. So the better sacrifices than these, the thought I woke up with this morning, refers undoubtedly to the definitive once and for all sacrifice of Jesus Christ, which could alone which alone could and did effect the radical alteration of the situation of the heavens as well as the earth. Get it? This is why we came this way. I'll say that again. The better sacrifices than these refers to the definitive once and for all sacrifice of Jesus Christ, which alone could and did affect the radical alteration of the situation of the heavens and the earth. Better sacrifices than these needed to purify the heavens. In other words, a better sacrifice, the supreme sacrifice was needed to bring about the reconciliation of everything in the heavens and on earth to God. In other words, a universal reconciliation the universal saving significance of Jesus Christ declared here. Now, I don't get these insights unless I agree. I, have to, I, I, I had to agree with an insight that he gave me if I was going to get more insights. In his light, we see light. If we refuse light, then we're not going to get more insight. If we flee from light, then we're not going to get more insight. If I had fled from the insight that it was Jesus Christ's faithfulness and not my faith that justified me, I wouldn't have had the insight that I'm talking to you about today. We walk with him. I don't know how Christians survive without a constant exposure to the word of God, a constant taking in of the teaching of the word, of the scriptures, the sacred text. I don't know how they do it because we can slip very easily back into a system of Christianity that's acceptable either by the right or the left wing. We're not fighting a battle between right and left and left and right today. We're fighting a battle between darkness and light and darkness is losing big time even though it looks like it's winning. That's the whole thing about darkness. It looks like it's winning. We live in a time when darkness is called light and light is called darkness. When bitter is called sweet and sweet is called bitter. 
When evil is called good and good are called evil, good people are called evil people. That's Isaiah 5. But darkness is losing. You have no idea how many people are being saved, converted, and coming to the knowledge of Jesus Christ and that are being drawn to him every single day in this world. Thousands, tens of thousands, Arabs, Jews, Muslims. You have no idea because Fox won't report it. Neither will Newsmax, neither will CNN, neither will MSNBC, neither will any of these networks report it because they are of this world. There's otherworldly things going on right now, right in this world right now. The gospel has been published ten times more in Israel than there are people in Israel, as I speak. And there are Jews flocking to the saving grace of Christ. There are people in China flocking to the saving knowledge of Jesus Christ. There are people in the Muslim faith that are dreaming about Jesus Christ and seeing him in real, authentic dreams. Jesus wasn't kidding when he said, if I'm lifted up, I'll draw everything, everyone to myself, everyone to myself. Don't ever think you're on the losing side. Greater are those who are for us. Greater is the force that is for us than those that are against us. So as we move to a close here, only Jesus Christ once and for all sacrifice sufficed to radically alter the situation of all of humanity before God from one of hostility to one of friendship against our resistance. While we were yet sinners, meaning while we were yet obstinate and resistant against God's love, Christ died for us and in our place. No wonder we need some convincing. What Jesus did is something that all the sacrifices offered under the law by all the priests and archpriests of the order of Aaron could never do. These offerings were only performed by the will of God and under the prescriptions of the law until the time of the correction. Diorthosis, Hebrews 9.10. That correction, that new order has been brought about with the once and for all sacrifice of Jesus Christ. Furthermore, after his sacrificial death, the God of peace who effected peace by reconciling everything in the heavens on earth, purifying earthly and heavenly things by his blood, led up from the dead the Lord Jesus with the blood of the everlasting covenant in Hebrews 13:20 this act of the god of peace in the great shepherd of the sheep was the basis for the radical alteration of the creational situation and condition because we will all be changed we will all be changed into bodies of incorruptibility and imperishability. And there's a good argument that that happens at the moment of death because, as Einstein rightly said, time is a field, not a continuum. So we'll get into that sometime soon.
So what happens in the time in between? Now, in this TIB, this time in between the two radical alterations, we put off the old man who was put to death in Jesus' death, immolated in the sacrifice of Jesus, who himself died the death of the old man, the man of sin. That's how Jesus Christ in his appearing, obliterated with fiery vengeance the man of sin in Second Thessalonians. That's not an eschatological, creepy thing that's going to happen when a lot of people are left behind. That's something that happened in the death of Jesus Christ. The man of sin, whom Jesus Christ became, was destroyed in the epiphany of his appearing, of Christ's appearing, immolated. I remember in the Vietnam era, seeing on film, on TV, on nightly news, monks, Buddhist monks, lighting themselves on fire because they believed that their immolation, their complete consuming would end this war, would be the energy that would end the war in Vietnam. Immolation, they called it. Well, the old man was immolated in the cross of Christ. The man of sin was annihilated by the epiphany of Jesus Christ and him crucified. The purification of the things in the heavens is related to the reconciliation of all things in the heavens and on earth, which could be and only was decidedly affected by the definitive sacrifice of Jesus Christ. How did Hebrews open? God, who in times past spoke provisionally, temporarily, partly and in part in the prophets, has in these last days spoken to us definitively and finally in a son. How does God speak definitively and finally in a son? With the word to telestai. The most important word in the New Testament is to telestai because Jesus first knew what God knew. That verse isn't just 1930, it's 1928, then 30. In 1928, it says that Jesus knew that all was finished. He knew that it was all finished. He knew that the perfect sacrifice was offered, that God's perfect love was demonstrated. He knew that the new creation had been brought forth. He knew that it was finished. He knew, therefore, what God knew as God and then he said what God said to Telestai in 1930. The 12 didn't hear that word. They were gone. They had headed for the hills and were cowering in an upper room, scared to death. One man heard it. His name was the beloved disciple, not one of the 12. He heard it to Telestai. Jesus knew what God knew, that it was finished in 1928. And in 1930, he said what God said, it is finished. That means a whole lot more than paid in full, by the way. He knew that everything was completed. The better sacrifices of Hebrews 9, 23, are together and one, the once and for all definitive sacrifice of Jesus Christ. How God spoke in his son 
was God speaking in his son's perfect sacrifice in Jesus Christ and him crucified. That was final. That was definitive. That was finished. The once and for all sacrifice of Jesus Christ was the death of the old man, the immolation of the old man in the whole burnt offering of the lamb, the burning up and going up in smoke of this man of sin. So why do we want to take the man who burned up and went up in smoke and make him better and call it Christian? That man can never be acceptable to God. The resurrection of Jesus Christ is the coming forth of the new man who can only be acceptable to God. Sorry, you can only be acceptable to God now. You've been made the righteousness of God in him. You are light in the Lord. You haven't just been enlightened or given light. You are light. You haven't just been given righteousness as imp by imputation. You are the righteousness of God. The obedience of Jesus Christ did not result in the declaring of many to be righteous, but in the constituting of many as righteous. That he made a perfect sacrifice in our place means he made that perfect sacrifice not only for us, and oh, did he do it for us, but he did it as us, and so we in him have made a perfect, satisfactory sacrifice to God. So it's only reasonable that we offer our bodies as a living sacrifice because they're already holy and acceptable to God. They're acceptable through Jesus Christ in 1 Peter 2.5 and 2.9. And oh, does Peter have a lot to contribute here, and we'll do that. There are many self-deceptive ways of self-glorification today. And you detect it. Richard Wormbrand, who spent 14 years in a prison camp and was tortured daily, literally tortured daily, and his wife Sabina tortured and abused daily for 14 years. Rats were eating his feet. He couldn't move in the prison cell. He came out. He went to a Christian service. Somebody came out and they belted out this popular contemporary Christian song. And everybody was, ah, like you see on the films of all the, a lot of Christian music. And Richard Wormbrandt got up and he said, I have never seen such a display of the flesh in my life. A disgusting display. And he, you, you go, oh, he dares, he doesn't care anymore. He didn't care. That's what I love about people that have been through hell and back. They don't care anymore. Well, what do you think her feel? What do you think she felt? And another guy gave a wonderful message and he, gave, he got up and he says, remember, Always remember, he looked at that pre, he was a flashy pre, I knew the guy, he was, flat, he was highly recommended by everybody, he was a young, good-looking guy, and he, was, he belted out a wonderful sermon. And Richard Wormbrandt got up and he says, remember when Jesus rode into town on the jackass? And he said, the jack he kind of leaned over and pointed at the guy, the jackass thought everybody was saying Hosanna to him but it was the one upon whose back he bore. It was Jesus, it wasn't the jackass, because they had applauded and all that kind of stuff. But anyways, there are many ways of 
deceptive ways, ways that don't trick you anymore when you're up in years in terms of your experience with Christ. Self-glorification, a lot of ways to do it. But there's only one way to glorify God, and that's to put off the old man altogether who was immolated in the Holocaust of the whole burnt offering that is the sacrifice of Jesus Christ, and to put on the new man who is Jesus Christ. There are many things that people call Christian activity or Christian service today, but only one thing is needful. One thing is real. One thing is real, and it's the putting off of the old man and the putting on of the new man. If this isn't happening, then there really is nothing that can rightly be called Christian in our lives in service. So, Father, we thank you that you've provided a way for us to put off the old man and to put on the new. Bring forth the new man in all of us. Bring forth the new man in our children and our children's children. Bring forth the new man in those who profess faith in Jesus Christ. Bring forth the new man in us. Let us leave behind the immolated, annihilated man of sin whom we cannot improve on. Bring forth the new man who's acceptable and can be nothing but accepted in the beloved as we put off the old man who can never be accepted by you. Father, bring forth a renewal among your people, a renewal of light. Fill this nation with light as you have filled this house with your light and glory today. Father, take away from us the urge and the incentive of self-glorification. Help us to look constantly and continually to the one whose perfect sacrifice demonstrated your perfect love. And thank you that we constitute your righteousness now because of the obedience of Jesus Christ and that you look upon us as those who have made the perfect sacrifice. May we walk as children of light, recognizing, Father, that once we were darkness, but now we are light in the Lord. Amen.